let's start. My name's Eitan Lenko and I'm the Chair and Interim CEO of Beyond Zero Mission. And I'm very excited and happy to uh, welcome you all to the launch of the Buildings Briefing of EZE's Million Jobs Plan. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're all meeting today and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future, and particularly welcome any Indigenous people that are on the call with us today. So we've got a great agenda today. I'm going to give a bit of an overview of the Million Jobs Plan, uh, and then we'll hand over to Michael Lord, who's our research lead on the plan, to take us through the opportunity for better buildings in Australia. And then we'll move on to a fantastic panel discussion. We've got some really great panellists today, and Heidi Lee, our project lead for the Million Jobs Plan, will run that panel. And then we've got plenty of time at the end for questions and a discussion. So for those of you who don't know about Beyond Zero Emissions, we're a not-for-profit energy think tank that's internationally recognised. And what we do is show how Australia can thrive through a transition to a zero carbon economy. We do that in a number of different ways. So firstly, there's our research. And our research shows how we can diversify and decarbonise our national economy and it does that on a sectoral basis. So for example, stationary energy, buildings, land use, manufacturing, and transport. But we also look at regional economies in Australia, particularly ones that are, that are challenged by the transition to a zero emissions economy. So we've done fantastic work in the Northern Territory, in Western Australia, and in Port Augusta in South Australia, and are, and are currently working on a big piece in the Hunter Valley. BZD has a zero carbon communities program that works with over 50 small communities around Australia to help them baseline and plan out how they can move to a zero carbon community. And we also work with business and industry and particularly we consult with business and industry on their particularly more ambitious decarbonisation strategies. And we've done that across a number of different areas of interest. So a really good example of how that all can come together is the work that we've done in the Northern Territory. So last year, we produced a report called the Northern Territory 10 Gigawatt Vision that showed how the Northern Territory can base its entire economy on its vast renewable resource. We showed the jobs and economic stimulus that could result from that, not just the emissions reduction. And we built a coalition of supporters around it. So we had business, capital, politicians, influencers, and of course, the community. We launched that at Parliament in Darwin last year, and we got a really great level of interest from the community, from the media, and from government in the Northern Territory. And it's been acknowledged that that report really helped change the economic direction of the Northern Territory government to be able to orient itself to take advantage of the opportunities that renewables bring. And you know, a really great acknowledgement of that is that I've been appointed to the Northern Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission, which is a hand-picked group of eight people to help advise the Chief Administrator on the economic recovery that the Northern Territory should take on its way out of the, of the coronavirus crisis. So really good acknowledgement there of the value of BZD's work. So particularly for the Million Jobs Plan, we've been really careful to put together a great advisory panel to help us um, make sure that our research is targeted and effective. So you can see we've got a great group of people here that can help us with political advice, with technical advice, and with strategic advice. And I'd like to acknowledge all of them for the help and support they've given us for the plan. 
Okay, so let's get on to, um, to the million jobs plan. I'll give a bit of a high level view and then we'll, we'll dive into the building section of it. You know, we know that Australia is now at a crossroads. We, we're in an economic crisis that's been, that's been caused by the response, the necessary response to COVID-19 and to get the economy back on track and to uh, you know, make sure that we don't have too many people unemployed for too long a time, billions of dollars is gonna have to be spent in the coming months and years. So we have a choice how we spend that money. We can double down on a non-competitive, inefficient and polluting economy, or we can do what we know, know we have to do. We can move towards self-reliance by electrifying our infrastructure, empowering it with cheap, reliable and efficient renewables sourced right here in Australia. The leading principle behind a strong stimulus program is that it should create jobs and it shouldn't be wasteful. And to make sure it's not wasteful, it, it should bring forward spending that would have happened anyway and encourage private sector investment. And so that means identifying the trend, the big picture trends of the economy and accelerating them. So the way that we think about that trend is, you know, you think about the mega trend from analog to digital. And when we're talking today about buildings, it's, it's just as relevant. We're talking about moving away from that old fire-based technology that's inefficient, hard to control, not compatible with software and digitization towards the new efficient electrical technology that is digitizable, that's modular, cost-effective, and allows us to be self-reliant in Australia. So the way that we're bringing all of this together um, is by taking a two-stream approach to the Million Jobs Plan. We're obviously working on the big national vision. That's what we'll be talking about today. What are the big projects, the big pieces of infrastructure, the big efforts that we need to shift our economy and get a lot of people back to work? But then we're also, through our Zero Carbon Communities Program, working with local communities to identify smaller projects in you know, particularly regional areas so that people can really get a picture of what this change will mean you know, to, their, to the place that they live and to their community. And so by getting people to understand the benefits to themselves and to their community, that then gives some buy-in, allows them to feel some, some, some buy-in to the bigger vision. They, they, they can see what the benefits will be and they can actually get a picture of how their lives might change for the better. So clearly, if we're gonna call something a million jobs plan, we need to, need to identify where those million jobs come from. And at the very highest level, this is where they are. So today we're gonna to be focusing on the, the building section, creating 3 million zero energy build buildings in Australia. That can create around 200,000 jobs as Michael will talk through in his presentation. Okay, so that's it for me. I'm gonna hand over to Michael. We can tell you a bit more around our bit of building. Thanks, Aitan. Yeah, so thanks for the introduction. Um, decarbonising buildings is really uh, a, a perfect sector to tackle really the twin aims of the Million Jobs Plan, which are to reduce Australia's emissions, a long-term aim, and to create jobs, uh, which has now become a, a short-term imperative. So buildings account in their operation and construction about 25% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a really significant sector when it comes to climate change. Buildings use about two thirds of the electricity generated in Australia. And buildings is also a sector that ordinarily is a huge employer. So about a million people uh, employed in the construction sector. And um, Master Builders Australia have projected that 
uh, there could be close to half a million job losses in the construction sectors. Fortunately, by creating efficient buildings and building new efficient buildings, as we're going to see, we could uh, minim minimize that number of uh, potential job losses. So if, if we think about uh, the criteria that a stimulus package should have, this area of decarbonizing buildings ticks a lot of those boxes. So it creates a lot of jobs. It creates a lot of jobs in a, in a sector uh, that is uh, potentially going to lose them. We can, we can get the projects off the ground quickly. We don't need years of the planning stage. We can target disadvantaged people, as we're going to see, by building social homes. And we create a whole load of long-lasting co-benefits, not just reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but uh, reducing energy costs and creating healthier and more comfortable buildings. So the, the, the briefing um, that we are releasing today, um, it doesn't, doesn't tackle everything in the building sector. Uh, it tackles those two uh, areas at the top. So building energy efficient social housing and deep home energy retrofits across Australia. Uh, those two sectors alone would create about more, more than 180,000 ongoing jobs in the construction sector and in manufacturing, supplying the construction sector. Uh, we hope that eventually the Million Jobs Plan, when we release it, will also include non-residential retrofits. There are a lot more jobs in that sector as well. Certainly, we're going to include adding um, solar and batteries to public buildings like schools which has all sorts of benefits. We probably won't look at uh, new building standards or embodied emissions, but they're both really important. So we have to create zero emissions buildings in their operation and construction. So the World Building Council released a call, worldwide challenge last year, to, saying to the construction and the infrastructure sector, oh, we must get to zero emissions building by 2050 in construction operation. Australian organisations like the Green Building Council have signed up to, to that. So as I go through the two uh, examples we've got this, in this briefing, I'm going to be talking about a concept of net zero energy buildings. So a net zero energy building is one that produces as much renewable energy as it consumes over the course of a year. Uh, there's a preference for that renewable generation to be on site, but it could, be, it could also be off-site. And these buildings are energy efficient, they're all electric, and they're gas-free. So there's no combustion of anything on site to produce their energy. It's concepts that's becoming more and more common worldwide. So in California, since 2017, all, all new state buildings uh, have been net zero energy buildings. And in the European Union from the end of this year, all new buildings of any type uh, will have to be what they call nearly zero energy buildings. So how do you achieve a net zero energy building? It's, it's actually not that hard technically. Uh, this is a graphic from Beyond Zero Emissions uh, Buildings Plan, which we released seven years ago. And this is how you would reduce the energy use of a 50s residential house in Melbourne. Uh, so you'd implement measures making it more thermally efficient, efficient lighting, replacing the gas heating and gas hot water with electrical alternatives. And through this sequence of measures, you'd reduce the energy use of that home uh, by less than a quarter of its initial use. 
So minimizing energy use is the first step in a, in a net zero energy building. Once you've minimized the energy use, then it's a much easier target for solar power, so rooftop solar, to achieve that energy. And uh, one of the things that has changed since the building's plan 2013 is how cheap uh, the installation of solar is. Smart home energy management systems have become cheaper and a lot more capable, and batteries are now uh, a viability as well. So technically, uh, it's, it's, it's not really that much of a challenge to, to achieve a net zero energy building. The, the difficulties are social and institutional. So our first idea for reducing emissions and creating jobs and creating a whole load of other uh, benefits for the most disadvantaged in society is to build lots of new social housing. So we're saying that we can build 30,000 new social housing units every year for five years. That would be 150,000. That would create 87,000 jobs in each of those years. We based those figures uh, on the Social Housing Initiative, which was a, uh, an initiative in Australia after the global financial crisis, which built, I think, 20,000 homes. So we, we have upscaled that. 30,000 homes a year is at the high end, even of what housing and homeless charities are calling for. Uh, although it is similar to what housing groups in Victoria, in, have called for in Victoria, they've asked for about 6,000 uh, social houses a year for 10 years in Victoria. We've, we've chosen this figure because, really because of the need. So the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute has pointed out that there's a shortfall already of more than 400,000 social houses, and that's growing. By 2036, it will be more than 700,000 uh, because Australia used to build thousands of social houses every year and essentially stopped about 25 years ago. So we've got a big backlog, and that's one of the main causes of homelessness. There are more than 100,000 homeless people now in Australia. In Victoria alone, there are 80,000 people on the social housing waiting list. They're going to be waiting years to get a house if, if they ever get one at all. So there's a desperate need for social housing. We could build this many houses a year uh, and, and we could make them energy efficient for about eight to nine billion dollars a year. That's a lot of money, but then quite small when you compare it to the amount of money we've had to spend on stimulus already and the amount of money we find for other things like nuclear submarines. Uh, so it's, it, we can certainly find this, this money. And as I say, Australia used to build thousands of social houses uh, a year. The UK actually built 100,000 social houses a year for many decades between the, the end of the Second World War and the 1980s. And we've seen some government uh, movements in this area. So the Victorian government has pledged 500. So these 150,000 social houses would be energy efficient. We're saying uh, they would they should achieve a 7.5 star energy efficiency. So that compares to the legal minimum today of six star. 7.5 compared to six, for example, in Melbourne would be 40% reduction in the energy used for heating and cooling. If we built all these uh, energy efficient homes, we would actually develop the capability and the skills of the construction sector to build more energy efficient homes. So when eventually the National Construction Code increases its minimum level, the, uh, the industry would be ready because they would have built these social homes. And similarly with the supply chain that would be supplying the insulation and other equipment needed uh, to build these homes. 
We'd also include solar on as many of these homes as possible and on some of them batteries as well, enabling people to use more of their solar energy and potentially turn social housing into a, a, a virtual power plant, which could benefit um, the, the national electricity grid and, and all of us in terms of lower power prices. So the second idea we have is to build two and a half million, to, not to build, but to retrofit two and a half million homes. And these are deep energy retrofits at, at the end of which achieve uh, zero net emission homes. So that's homes that generate as much renewable energy as they use over the course of the year. And the way we do that in each home is to carry out a thermal retrofit. So, so to make the uh, heating and cooling demands low, we'd replace the gas space heating and gas uh, hot water with electrical, uh, much more efficient electrical uh, equivalents. We'd add solar, we'd add some batteries, uh, and it would create a whole industry in professional services uh, organizing and maintaining these energy retrofits. So this would create by the fifth year, 100,000 jobs. So it'd be a really huge energy uh, create, uh, job creator. Uh, the, fu the full cost of doing this to an individual house, to a house that had nothing, would be about, uh, we estimate at $44,000. But most houses wouldn't need the full package because it, most houses have some level of insulation. Many uh, indeed have uh, solar panels. So the average cost to a house would be less than less than thirty thousand. Um, Five hundred thousand uh, home e energy retrofits a year is something that is being targeted in some European countries, uh, for example, France. Uh, the United States uh, did energy upgrades to a million homes after the global financial crisis. France and the US are obviously bigger than Australia, but Australia can be, we can decide to be more ambitious than those countries as well. Um, so the real question is uh, that I don't think any country has tackled is how to do retrofits on this scale, uh, especially when we're talking about people's uh, private homes, we're unlikely to uh, force people to do them, so how, how are we going to get it done? One place we could start is with social houses. Social uh, There are about half a million social houses in Australia, so that's a year's worth of our plan and would give the, the industry the chance to uh, upskill and gain expertise in doing these retrofits. Uh, then there are rental properties. We could we could introduce incentives or even conditions on rental properties to carry out deep energy retrofits. There are more than 2.5 million rental properties in in Australia. Um, but one thing I do want to get across is that we we do have the money to do this. It's not a question of money because, as I've shown on my next slide. Australians already uh, in the next 10 years are set to spend round about $250 billion on their energy bills, on their gas and electricity bills. That would be enough to carry out the deep energy retrofits we're talking about to every house in Australia. So I think we should think about an equivalence between this money and the money we could be spending on retrofits. And so 
We need to think about business models that are going to channel this money, not into the energy industry, but into the home uh, retrofit industry. And I'd like to present one uh, way of doing this. It's not, the, it's not the only way, but I think it is an interesting model that, uh, that there is some experience with in Europe. And that is the Managed Energy Services uh, Agreement. So it's, it, takes a, it takes a little while, if you've never heard of this kind of uh, Managed Energy Services Agreement, to get your head around what is going on. It actually changes the model where a ha from where a householder pays an energy bill each month according to their energy they use. It changes it into uh, paying for an energy service, paying a set fee uh, for energy provision. It, a, a, a good analogy is with a mobile phone. So many people have a mobile phone contract. They pay a set fee for that. And if you like, they get the handset and the calls and the texts and the internet use is free in inverted commas, but they know what they're going to get as a guaranteed performance. They know what they're going to pay each month. Uh, and, and it's the same with a uh, managed energy services agreement. So the, the managed, the energy services company would organize and finance the entire retrofit to make your house uh, a net zero energy house. There'd be no upfront cost to you as a property owner. The energy services company would also guarantee a minim minimum level of energy performance. So for example, an interior temperature in summer and winter, a comfortable interior te uh, temperature would be guaranteed. And the performance of the uh, the insulation, the solar panels, the batteries, if there, there was one, uh, they would all be guaranteed by this energy service provider. And they would deal with the energy retailer, not you as, as the householder. So from a householder's point of view, uh, two big barriers to deep energy retrofits are being, are being overcome by this model. One is the upfront costs. You no longer have, you wouldn't have any upfront costs because that's the responsibility of the uh, energy services company. You're simply switching from energy bills to a, to a monthly fee. And that monthly fee would be less than you historically paid in bills. Uh, the second barrier that would be overcome is the uncertainty of performance. I think one thing that stops people uh, get, getting deep energy retrofits is they're not quite sure how much it, it's going to save them and no one will guarantee uh, what it is. But with this, the energy services company guarantees the performance and if it doesn't work out as expected, then they're required to come back and fix things. Um, a householder w w still has to put up with a few days of disruption while the retrofit takes place. Uh, but in return for that, they get lower energy costs they get certainty of energy costs into the future because it's a flat fee. Uh, it could increase the value of the property, um, result in a more comfortable home and possibly a better looking home. The, the energy services company would do this uh, basically because they would get a return on their investment. So their investment in retrofitting, um, they would get a, a, a small return uh, thanks to the, the monthly fee that you'd be paying them. And this would be made a lot easier if they were able to access uh, low interest government loans. Uh, we know that um, the federal government can now borrow money for, the, for an interest rate of less than 1%. Uh, so 
that money through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation or a new body should be made available uh, to these managed energy service companies. And as I say, we can get started with them. Um, this, this would be a fairly new model in the residential sector of Australia, but we can get started in the social housing area and, um, and then we could continue uh, into, into the, rent, uh, the rental sector. This is actually a model that already exists in the commercial and residential sector around the world. Um, I'm going to mention one company, uh, a Dutch company, that, that has had a successful um, application of managed energy service contracts. Um, so Energiesprong, which uh, means something like energy jump in Dutch, uh, they have now retrofitted thousands of homes uh, in the Netherlands and around Europe to the uh, net zero energy standard. Uh, so homes that produce as much energy uh, as they use. This picture is of a row of homes, social houses in Nottingham. So see if you can spot the house that didn't go for the energy sprung model, uh, but all the ones with the white walls did. Um, and this has been, this particular case study has been monitored to death. It's working really successfully. It's um, made the homes much more comfortable, more presentable, and it's reduced the energy bills for the occupants. Uh, energy Sprung um, so far has been government uh, subsidized, subsidized by the government. But they say that if they're able to go from a few thousand homes, which they've done so far, to tens of thousands of homes, it will be self-financing. And what we think is that if you can do this in Europe, where they regularly face uh, sub-zero temperatures and most retrofits will need external wall insulation, then we should be able to do it in Australia, where by and large, we don't need to make the houses nearly as thermally efficient to be able to produce the energy with solar panels. Solar panels obviously work a hell of a lot better in Australia than they do uh, in Nottingham. When you can see the day this is taken, um, the sun isn't especially shining. Um, so that's that's just one way of doing it. Um, we're not saying this has to be the way we, we do it in Australia, but what we would like you to take from this presentation is uh, the level of ambition. Um, so 150,000 social houses, new energy efficient social houses in five years, and 2.5 million energy retrofits. We have this level of ambition because that's what's needed. We need urgently to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's also technically more than possible. It's financially achievable, uh, and it will create a whole load of co-benefits uh, co like lower energy costs and more comfortable housing and reduced homelessness. And it would have the short-term effect of creating uh, nearly 200,000 jobs in the construction sector. So I'll be really interested to see what the, the panelists and other uh, attendees have to say about this. And uh, now I'll hand over to Heidi. Thank you so much, Michael. And I think if everyone on mute can give you a round of applause and just send that energy to you, that was a great presentation. And uh, I think a lot of fodder for our panelists to draw from. So my role today is to introduce our five industry leaders and to help your questions find a, a place in, in their 
um, drawing on their intelligence and their contribution to the building sector and the manufacturing sector and the finance sector over many years. I'm Heidi, I'm the project lead for the Million Jobs Plan at Beyond Zero Emissions and I'm joining you today from Wurundjeri land um, in Melbourne. I'm paying respects to elders past, present and those emerging. So I mentioned five industry leaders joining us today. Uh, we have sectors represented are design, development, social services, the workers and finance. Um, and I know that we're also joined by many other industry leaders on the call. I can see a participants list there and it's great to have you all here today. So I'm gonna introduce each panelist and ask them one question to get that started. After I've done each introduction and each first question, I'll open up uh, the Q&A here so I can see it on the screen and I'll be reading out your questions. So submit them anytime and I'll get to them at the end. Without delay, our first panelist is Caroline Hidcock. Caroline has a long career as an award-winning architect and sustainability leader in the buildings industry. She's a past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, a past president of the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council. She's currently the chair of One Million Women and the spokesperson for Architects Declare. In 2009, Caroline was awarded a scholarship to study the architecture of net zero housing. And I promised to drag that one up to make sure she gets some questions about it. So Caroline, my question for you, you have been designing sustainable homes for over three decades, but we're talking today about a really, really large scale application of, of building retrofits and of, of high performing, low cost new homes. How can we make sure that good quality outcomes are delivered as part of these really large scale initiatives? Hi Heidi and I say hello from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation up here in Sydney and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, a great question, look it's really, I mean it's just astounding when you think about it that, that standard practice is to build shitty homes. I mean how did that ever happen? And I suppose, um, you know, that we've really got to embrace this as a really great idea and apply, particularly, I think, from a design point of view, how do you take on that and really make beautiful homes from it? And it is entirely possible and it's entirely, I mean, it, there's examples all over the world. And I suppose you say, well, why isn't it happening more? And it's probably because change people get into a habit of building and designing in certain ways and find it really hard to change but it actually isn't that hard to change and it isn't that difficult um, I think we just need to concentrate on better quality and you know a less is more kind of approach where you what you build is you build quality and you build it beautifully and you build it with so that people find delight in in living in these places as well as incredible comfort and health oh and guess what hardly any bills so um very very possible and doable thanks caroline and i think it'd be great to hear from you later on about perhaps some of the experience you've had in in delivering these really high performance homes i'm gonna introduce rob Pradelin next um, rob for the past 30 years has lived and breathed commercial residential development since leaving Fraser's Property Australia, he's established Housing All Australians, and you can see that in his background there. Um, this is a private sector for-purpose organisation that believes Australia's long-term 
economic is to house all Australians, rich or poor. This means building at scale more public, social and affordable housing. So, Rob, you must be pleased with the increased interest in, in building more, more public, social and affordable housing. This is what you're about. And I know you have a view that this is a problem too big for the government to solve alone. So what do you think needs to happen to seriously engage with the private sector at scale, the scale that we're talking about, to make them part of the solution? Well, firstly, thank you, Heidi, for the opportunity to share my views and to listen to what I'm saying are thought leaders in the climate change agenda. And we like to think that we're pushing the housing agenda very focusedly so we can actually get something done. So in answer to your question, look, yes, I'm very pleased that the discussion has centred into building more social, affordable public housing at scale. But being a bit cynical and understanding how politics works and when the unions and master builders get together, it's all about self-interest to build more housing to get more jobs. And that's, that's fine. The real challenge comes after it becomes, it stops becoming a COVID um, economic initiative and to continue the pipeline because, you know, through my experience and, and um, learnings, like, like you guys, I've come to the very, very clear view that the long-term cost to our society of not providing more social, public and affordable houses is that we're leaving an intergenerational time bomb because whilst government terms are three years, some of these initiatives building the $400,000 that your paper refers to is gonna take decades. And we have to create, like you have done, the public outcry to say this is something as a society that we do not want to be part of and the real interesting point and not many people actually know this but our super funds have several billion dollars invested in housing americans and hardly anything in this country because the financial instruments at the federal level do not create the mechanisms that allow them to get a reasonable financial return and it's not the super funds fault by any means it's what we set up federally. So the task for us at the end of this, and this is what we're focusing on, is creating the economic argument, not the social argument, because that's been sort of done quite well, but the economic argument that it's in our long-term interest to save money in terms of less mental health, physical health, family violence, justice, policing, et cetera, et cetera. It just makes sense to provide what is a basic human need and I don't want to go down the human rights argument because that disenfranchises 50% of the population, but no one can deny it's not a fundamental human need. And without that being met, unintended consequences. So look, I'm very pleased. I do agree that it needs to be, they need to be um, insulated to reduce the, the um, operating costs of the homes. But again, it's got so many tentacles and self-interest that you've got to be aware of that to actually get an outcome that we're all happy with. So, um, but I do admire you and I do agree that we need to challenge the status quo in the whole range of levels. You guys are focusing on energy, we're focusing on housing. Thanks, Rob. And I think as well, um, you've got some really interesting examples of some types of solutions that you're trying to bring to the market that really draw on that private finance to leverage change at scale. And I think that we could um, work together to push some of those ideas even harder to see them come to life sooner. Kelly Court is our next panellist. Uh, Kelly is a Senior Advisor, Climate and Energy at ACOS. And ACOS, for those who don't know, is the Australian Council of Social Service. 
So at ACOS, Kelly leads the development of strategic policy, advocacy, research directions around climate and energy. So we are extremely lucky to have you join us today. Thank you, Kelly, for making time. I know you've got an especially busy schedule right now. So Kelly, in our paper, we outlined a five-year plan that focuses on improving housing outcomes for low-income people and increasing social housing supply across the country. But what is social housing and, and why should we focus on low-income households um, and in, in terms of government spending in an economic downturn. So could you share some of your thoughts around those issues? Thanks, Heidi. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land in which I'm currently sitting on, which is the Jagger and the Turbal people. Um, so I'm in southeast Queensland um, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. So, yes, ACOS... Um, mission, I guess, is to eliminate poverty and inequality. And part of that is the, that contributes to poverty um, in particular is housing, whether it's the cost of housing um, or the cost of running housing. And I think often we focus a lot on the cost of housing, which is important, um, but we forget about the cost of running the house and and what we find is a lot of people especially when you're renting um, end up in a house that they can afford to rent um, but then realize that the the costs of actually uh, being able to run that home to make it comfortable and healthy for them to live in can become prohibitive so you know a good example is take the ACT where something like 40% of rental properties are zero energy rated so can you imagine living in in Canberra in below zero temperatures and not being able to heat your home um, you know people become very sick um, and if they do um, invest in hitting their home, it means they go without other essential services. So, uh, for example, food, medicine, um, things like that. So it can be quite devastating for people on, on low income or experiencing disadvantage um, to be in properties that have poor energy efficiency. Um, so, you know, ACOS is, is currently coordinating um, a coalition of organisations called the Healthy and Affordable Homes. We've got 40 plus members, many of them will be on this um, call today and, you know, includes a lot of community sector, housing uh, organisations, as well as uh, research organisations, um, including BZE, Energy Efficiency Council, ASBEC and, and others. Um, and, you know, we all have a goal of supporting improving the energy efficiency of existing homes, as well as improving the standards of, of new builds as well. Um, and I guess the other thing I just wanted to raise is that I'm not sure that everyone's aware, but there is a process underway at the moment through COAG Energy Council called the Trajectory for Low Emission, Low Energy Buildings, where they are aiming to, um, as a goal, there's no date set for this, but there is a goal of zero emission homes. And, and part of that is to improve the energy efficiency of existing homes. Um, and so our coalition is working closely with them to make sure that um, in particular, low income homes um, are prioritised. And some of the key asks around that is mandating um, energy efficiency rating for rental properties. I noticed there was a question in there about rental properties. So we think that it should be mandated that rental properties um, 
energy efficiency is increased um, and then support financial support for other low-income homes. So social housing, which includes uh, community and public housing and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander housing. And then people on low income who own their own home but can't afford to invest in energy efficiency. So that might be someone, for example, who's on a pension um, that does own their asset, but um, their weekly income means that they can't invest in some of the measures they need to to improve their home. So there, there's some of the types of housing that, that we're looking at. Um, and perhaps later on in the conversation, I can also talk to you about an, an initiative that we're supporting at the moment around economic stimulus. Thank you, Kelly. Um, great to have you here and great to hear a bit about the broader sector and how you're collaborating um, across likely and unlikely partners to help make some of these initiatives come to life because we, we need them. Now, I was going to go to Godfrey next, but I think that um, he doesn't have his camera on, so I'm going to go to Scott. Scott Boxe is joining us, um, and he's the CEO and Managing Director of the Sustainable Australia Fund. Um, Scott has pioneered environmental upgrade finance agreements in Australia and is working with governments across the country uh, to create and improve this new form of finance. So I think uh, present some direct answers to some of the challenges that we've laid out around how to make these things happen. The Sustainable Australia Fund is working in partnership with Bank Australia to invest in projects that yield positive economic and environmental outcomes, which is what we're about today. So Scott, upgrade finance has been available in the business sector for some time, but can you tell us how it works and how it can be used to support high quality housing outcomes for Australians? Right, thanks Heidi for the introduction. Yes, um, yeah, environmental upgrade agreements uh, have been around for uh, nearly a decade, but only available to uh, the non-residential sector. Uh, we started in Victoria and effectively, this is a loan which is repaid through council rates. Uh, and because of its structure, it enables us to mobilise a lot of capital towards the sector uh, to deliver projects that have to to yield a, a public benefit outcome. And, and in this circumstance, you know, it's a better performing building. Um, we've been working with governments, uh, environmental upgrade agreements are available currently in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And we're talking to governments across the country to expand that availability. But perhaps most uh, recently, uh, we're based in Melbourne here and we're working with Victorian government uh, during the height of the, the COVID lockdown uh, little known was that the Victorian government passed, uh, the law came to power that um, environmental upgrade agreements can actually now be used for residential properties. So uh, that happened on the 6th of April and uh, we're very happy to see that this has now moved in this direction. You know, we, we think the opportunity for residential property is, um, is significant. You know, there's about 500,000 private ho houses bought and sold each year. Yeah, other than the ACT, which has uh, mandatory disclosure about performance of the properties, we think there's a couple of things that governments can do uh, to quickly mobilise demand for these kind of outcomes here. Yeah, we know and we saw a lot of the good opportunities that Michael presented there. You know, the, the challenge is demand and access to capital uh, for the kind of outcomes we're seeking here. Uh, to remobilise a workforce towards uh, this outcome. So we work with governments and we, we basically say, you know, government's balance sheets are increasingly getting more and more uh, crowded, particularly with all of this COVID stimulus. You know, how can you actually stimulate this outcome with a swipe of the legislative hand? Uh, 
you know, uh, it was mentioned before uh, by Kelly, the work that COAG is doing to moving towards this direction. But I think, you know, what we can uh, do uh, to stimulate activity to acquire all uh, homes um, to mandatorily declare their energy performance at the point of sale and at the point of lease. So that consumers have transparency about the total cost of occupancy of those properties. Uh, the other one is, uh, you know, uh, th then working with governments as we ha have to make environmental upgrade agreements available, not only to residential properties, but also to vacant land or to and, and able to fund new buildings. We've done a lot of work uh, around uh, these two particular opportunities from Sustainable Australia Fund's perspective, particularly home renovation markets and also uh, construction of new buildings. Uh, in the new buildings, we've looked at uh, opportunities to deliver zero net carbon homes for the same sticker price as a six star uh, home uh, and the marginal cost difference, which is anywhere between twenty-five dollars and $45,000, is funded by an environmental upgrade agreement. The outcome here is that if you, if you have long-term fixed interest finance like an environmental upgrade agreement that can transfer between owners as a property is bought and sold, the cash flow benefits go directly to the owner of that building at that time. So each homeowner we estimate would have about $200 a year better off after repaying. Uh, across these two segments, we, we look, you know, um, that by 2050, you know, if we retrofitted, um, you know, close to two and a half million uh, homes, you're looking at, you know, housing stock would be carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, housing affordability, affordability would be kept in check. Uh, and this is primarily because the, the way, the detail, and I won't go into it at this stage of how EUAs work, it would enable builders' margins to increase by about 30 without a change to the price a, a, a purchaser pays for the home. So remember that, you know, the same sticker price as a six-star home. Yeah, in present day value, that equates to the, the governments or governments across Australia stimulating the economy to the tune of about $24 billion. Um, and and that's, that's a good step. That, that basically is... Um, in disposable income for households that can be reinvested uh, across the economy. And this would be most importantly, 100% private sector finance um, because environmental upgrade agreements is funded by lenders uh, who, who, who provide the capital as opposed to grants uh, or, or subsidy from uh, government. Yeah, so in, in a COVID climate, you know, new housing starts are forecast to really drop down. And so these kind of a stimulation, the swipes of the pen could actually mobilise and create demand for a workforce so that is currently building new buildings into, um, uh, you know, retrofit kind of work. And, you know, the, the, and these, most importantly, these are not significant uh, renovations. They're not the $150,000 renovations that do require, um, you know, planning permits, uh, things like this. You know, these are, Retrofits, you know, replacing in insulation, double glazing, solar panels, hot water, thermal capacity, what we're talking about here. And this kind of uh, activity can be mobilised pretty quickly. We have the capital available to do it. Um, we have the workforce available to do it. Uh, what we need is a, a couple of swipes of the legislative pen to enable it.
fantastic, Scott. It all feels a lot more more doable hearing about the work that's underway um, with the Sustainable Australia Fund. So let's um, not compromise on our ambition in terms of getting these things happening. Godfrey Mose, like we're, we're, it's not complete talking about these types of ambitious goals and we've spoken about the need and who's going to benefit from living in better homes. We've spoken about how to help maintain the quality of these upgrades and, and design delivery. And we've talked about uh, um, leveraging private finance to help make it happen. But what happens when we start to get demand from our building sector for high quality building materials? What happens in the supply chain and, and upstream of those houses? There are um, your workers, there are factory workers and the manufacturing sector and the um, supply chain sector bringing all of this stuff together. So how can um, your workers benefit from this type of initiative? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, Heidi, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm zooming in from the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, in Melbourne. And this plan, I think, is speaks to a lot of things that are very dear to my heart personally, because I grew up um, in a situation of uh, long-term housing insecurity. Um, and I work with United Workers Union. We have 150,000 members across 47 industries. Um, and housing security and the cost of living is a huge issue for our members wherever they work, whether that's in early childhood or aged care or many other facets of the economy. So we have a general interest in the quality of housing stock and housing security and public housing going up. Um, but in my particular role, I represent thousands of members in manufacturing and Australia has still a relatively good footprint of building products manufacturing. Many of these products in the supply chain, it's incredibly difficult and costly to transport them long distances just because of the nature of the products um, and the volume that are in them. Um, and having this sort of public housing-led, social housing-led stimulus measure along with the social innovation um, of a managed energy services um, agreement is an incredibly powerful tool that can have a lot of upstream jobs that come with it um, and help with building up Australia's manufacturing sector. Um, because my global analysis of, of where we are is that the technology, the policies that we need, there is always room for improvements, but we know basically what we need to do to manage this transition and manage it properly. The barriers are social and they're political. Um, and having really good quality local content and procurement provisions that go along with these sort of public investments, I think are critical to bringing along a social base for this plan. I say that because for a government, social spending um, is not the same as just the cost of the product, um, whether uh, one bit of insulation costs $1.50 or a dollar, really depends on what happens, what impact occurs in the community for that spend, much like the cost of public housing and the cost of not dealing with public housing. There are very strong overlaps there, but I think unions were an incredible engine for social change. Um, and there are even some unions following the legacy of J Jack Mundy who are trying to work through this process and they get a lot of bad attention, sometimes a lot of bad headlines, but the um, building and construction division of the CFMEU in Victoria, the AMW, ETU and us through Cooperative Power have also been working through this process of how do you have um, 
how do you have a transition and a massive upgrade in building stock that doesn't leave working people behind, that doesn't discriminate people who can't afford the upfront costs? Um, and that we've been doing that through Powering Victoria, and this is a really incredible plan that BZE has led and put together as well. And we've got to really make sure that we um, can push for this. Thanks. Thank you so much. So I've been looking at the Q&A. I'm only looking at the Q&A for questions, everyone. And so from this, I can see that we've got some themes developing around. Um, people would like to hear some specifics about what kinds of things um, you can do to upgrade a building and make it more sustainable. So what I'm going to do is read out um, the questions, frame them up into, into a topic, and then I'll look to my panellists for a wave of the hand to say, I'll take that. Um, so I'm my eyes are on you. The first question uh, was specifically back to that retrofit quality. So how can we make sure that um, they want to hear specific things that you do to make a house more thermally efficient? How is that different in different climate zones? And how can we make sure we do it well and don't just create condensation problems in buildings from sealing them up when, when they're not made to do that from the start? I expect Caroline and she put her hand up. Caroline, over to you. I think it's really critical that we, um, that all, everyone, architects, designers, engineers, and um, builders are upskilled in how to prevent condensation issues because as you seal a building up more, those issues become much more apparent. And so you've got to put in place um, techniques to, to make sure that condensation doesn't develop. Um, someone, I did see one of the questions saying without without going to passive house. Well, passive house is actually a very good um, system and their very low energy, low cost ventilation systems are what stops that uh, ventilation, that those condensation issues from happening. But there are very simple things. I lived for eight years in a heritage listed terrace and couldn't do much to that. But the biggest impact was sealing up gaps between floorboards and and skirtings and around windows and making the windows much more efficient with secondary glazing that sort of could be applied to heritage listed windows and it went from being very uncomfortable in winter to really you know not I'm not saying it was totally comfortable without a bit of heating but I could get up in the morning and walk around with without sort of putting on you know a doona to move um, so I think that there are some very simple things but and, and insulation is a is a big one, and subfloor insulation and ceiling insulation is the most important. And you know, pink back scheme. You know, I think there was a lot more. I think the bad news around that was a lot more political than it was bad. Um, and but I do think that there were also a lot of unskilled people installing. So back to training up people and doing simple things. But I just think that there are many really quite simple things at the very first level and then sort of supplemented with, I think, that beautiful diagram that Michael showed of um, much more efficient appliances for heating and cooling that can supplement a building envelope that is less inefficient. Thank you. And Godfrey, you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think... Um workers' rights at the point of installation are incredibly important for that to the extent that we've had a bad experience as a country with pink bats that wasn't a political beat up, it was because of poor quality occupational health and safety. Um, and so having workers who are experienced, um, who can exercise voice 
in that is an incredibly important way to respect the craft and the quality of, of the build and whether that's through um, uh, firms that are unionised, cooperative firms, there's many different models, but the core of it is workers who have that experience, who have those skills and ha can have voice um, about issues that they identify there. Thanks, Godfrey. And it is worth um, the audience here knowing that um, we are working on a, a chapter in our overall million jobs plan that's going to outline some of the additional jobs that are required to make sure that we can support workers um, to deliver this, this new, more, more high quality um, product than what they're able to at the moment. And there's additional jobs in that. So it's a flow on benefit from committing to these large scale stimulus. We've got some questions here around um, how to make this happen. So there's some specific questions around the, the MESA model, the managed energy services model, but I think that um, I'd like to bundle up a few of those into some questions around the, the how of the finance. What's the, what's the value, that kind of return? If we, if we spend that twenty-five dollars to $30,000 that, that's widely broadcast in the news right now, what kind of return can we expect to see over, over what period? Why, why is this an attractive investment? I hope that, that captures a few, few questions I'm seeing here in the, in the Q&A. And Scott, you took a big sigh and I'll take that for a hand up. Uh, yeah, look, we, we've, we've looked specifically at this, as I said, for both uh, retrofit and new construction. And that marginal cost around that $30,000, you know, I think, um, you need to, if you're going to be funding this with something like an environmental upgrade agreement, you need to fund, you know, factor in the repayments of those loans. Very similar to the, the, the MESA model, right? Is that effectively the MESA model is uh, using private capital to unlock that upfront works and then the, the return on investment through those fixed repayments over the term of the contract. Um, is it the same kind of model? And I think. You know, this is a shotgun approach. We need lots of different approaches. It's not just the MESA model. It's not just, you know, the, the pink bats or whatever the kind of scheme is. You know, there's lots of innovation that needs to occur across business models. But fundamentally, with, with our modelling around a, a standard retrofit, building owner, a homeowner organises the upgrade, however, whether it be through a MESA service provider or somebody else, um, that our, our modelling shows that with a 20-year, and the term of the loan is really quite important, a 20-year fixed interest uh, loan, each householder after debt service could be about $200 a year better off. And we're looking at uh, insulation upgrades, thermal efficiency. Uh, we're also looking at renewable energy uh, as well as uh, some water efficiency projects within that, that, that upgrade. Um, so, so, you know, by doing these works, so long as you can overcome the upfront question about finding the capital to do that, and we believe we've got a product that can help there, um, you know, it's $200 a year better off. Uh, and in this time, that actually is, is as I said, a direct injection into um, the economy. And, and this goes, we're seeing this, we've been active in the, uh, in the commercial space and uh, in the residential space where uh, you know cost of living is going up um, and the cost of energy is going up you know as, as Michael alluded to here there's 250 billion dollars worth of uh, capital that we're essentially unlocking to go to deploying workers and putting that extra capital in people's pockets. Thanks Scott and, and Kelly your perspective on this I saw a hand up which I'm either a fly or a perspective. <laughs> 
it's it's a perspective. <laughs> no, no flies around here at the moment. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, from a cost perspective, and I and I mentioned when I spoke before that. Um, the, there's the, the Coalition for Healthy Homes, quite a number of those members plus more have worked on an economic stimulus proposal, which we're calling the, the National Low Income Energy Productivity Program, which has four elements to it, um, uh, which is around social housing, low income homeowners, as I mentioned before, rental properties, and also an appliance, appliance scheme. So I guess what we're suggesting is there is, um, you know, for rental properties, um, as as I mentioned, we're talking about mandating that, and and that there could be potentially be some sort of incentive for landlords once that's that's mandated. Although we, although we believe that you know, if if you own a if you own a rental property, then you have some sort of um, obligation to ensure that rental property is safe and healthy as well. Um, but we recognise that there probably will need to be incentives. Uh, I guess one of the things we're saying is while COAG is working on that framework around mandating that there is an opportunity as part of an economic stimulus to help um, the lowest performing rental properties improve through an economic stimulus measure. And so that's certainly one of the things that we're advocating on a voluntary basis. We in our package and also social housing, both for public and community and Aboriginal housing and low income housing. Now we're not talking about $25,000 investment um, as BZE is, and I can certainly understand why BZE is because it's, you know, you, you're talking about zero bills and, and zero emission homes. So I guess what we're saying is part of economic stimulus. Um, we're, we're only looking at a $5,000 cap investment, um, which can go towards things like um, big ticket items like new reverse cycle air conditioning, which can help with heating and cooling, hot water systems, um, insulation, those sorts of things that can make um, a short-term difference. But, you know, our costing show that that in itself is going to cost billions of dollars to do over four years to do all the social housing dwellings, as well as the 1.1 million homes of people living um, on low income and, and rental properties. So it is a big outlay for governments. Um, but, you know, what I guess our view is, is that these people can't afford to do it on their own. And even through, you know, having some sort of um, a loan scheme would be challenging for some of those people to be able to provide off um, over many years. So, you know, I think there's a mixture of, of measures that you can use and we're certainly advocating that as a stimulus measure, governments should be investing in the short term. And there's so many co-benefits for doing that, as we've all talked about. So it's the it's the jobs that can be created, um, it's the savings on bills that can be reinvested back into the economy for stimulus, um, as well as the health outcomes. Um, and not and we haven't mentioned uh, cutting emissions. And the other thing we haven't mentioned is um, improving the reliability um, of the grid, as well. Absolutely right. And I think that there's there's a, a narrow window that we have today to um, hear from our last panellist. I'm going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. But before we do, Rob, I think you have some perspectives and maybe some new ideas that perhaps our audience hasn't heard about how to get 
um, these projects happening at scale? Well, first, it's response to Kelly. And I, look, I agree with everything she says, but we're also going to be looking at government saying that the limited there's a limited um, pot of money and um, being, again, very cynical, it's all about political self-interest and we want things that are long-term strategically placed to place Australia in a better position. But it's, the stimulus is all about short-termism as opposed to long-term strategy. But what Scott said earlier, you've got to focus on the hip pocket. Um, market will drive things if it's actually in their interest and we're going through a cultural change here. This is, the consumer is always sceptical about all these um, offers to say, you're, nev you're never going to be better, so you're going to be always better off and there's, there's no downside, but the, they're always sceptical. We have to create trust in some of these things and by potentially um, backing it and, and educating the public, because that's the only way for long-term sustainability, which is why one of the principles that we adopt is we're not waiting for government. The private sector has to lead this. If you wait for government, you'll die. Um, a crisis, you know, un uncharacteristically, they've made decisions during this crisis, but you've got to get to a crisis for government to make decisions. And I'm over waiting for government. It's people on this seminar and the private sector that will have to lead change because governments will always lag. Thank you so much, Rob. I, um, I have a moment now to hand back to Aitan for final comments, but his internet will not let me do that. So I'm instead going to um, provide a wrap up of, of today. Um, I've got some slides here from Michael. Look at this teamwork and collaboration. Let that be the lasting message that we leave with today, that the collaboration that is needed for us to implement the types of changes across our design industry, our construction sector, our manufacturing workers, our finance sector, and our developers. Our, all of these things need to come together at a scale that we have not yet done. And the need and the benefits should be the reason that we can do that. I hope you've all enjoyed um, and learned something today. I know I have, and I'm incredibly grateful that we were able to be joined by Caroline Hidcock, Rob Pradolin, Godfrey Mose, Kelly Court and Scott Boxey. So another silent round of applause for you. We appreciate you very much. Um, now, a number of unanswered questions came through on the Q&A and they were primarily around a huge bunch of ideas for um, and curiosity about how BZD is going to take this plan forward to help make change um, in that national debate. So... If you'd like to stay a part of this, there are still opportunities to join us and contribute to the Million Jobs Plan. This is just one of six different areas of, that we are creating initiatives that start to set that national ambition for what is possible. Can we get a million Australians back to work building a clean energy economy? And if so, what would they be doing? Come and join us and, and help make this happen. You'll see the whole plan um, on the 29th of June. Uh, we're having our public launch then and that will be a, a milestone for us in our campaign to help um, set that next stage up which will be around this make it happen and let's make sure that um, we do make it happen. We have a couple of hundred people on the call today so if you're not already signed up to our newsletters and our social media please do that's where you're going to hear about things like our manufacturing and mining industry briefing the national launch of our snapshot emissions tool, 
the Million Jobs Investment Roundtable and a roundtable focused on the opportunities in the Hunter region. So in addition to our panelists, I know I can see um, some fantastic contributors to our Million Jobs Planner on the call today. A special call out to Ross Harding from Finding Infinity and to Dr. John Scheel for your um, enormous contributions to our crowdsource research project to make this all happen. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your wisdom and your comments. We'll be taking your Q&A and using it to make our work better. Um, go well and, and please do make sure that you share your, your comments and your feedback with us ongoing. And if you find a need to celebrate this, do it loudly on social media, we'd all like it. But thank you very much for your time today and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.